You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and roll bedtime stories. We are here to put to rest some of those rumors, that innuendo, those tall tales. My name's Brian. I'm Murdoch, and we were made for this, dude. I've got a story that I'm really excited about because it is unique in that it really is about the coming together of two very famous American era-defining groups, okay? But one of them is arguably one of the most beloved American icon groups, and the other one is one of the most feared and notorious. And they were actually friends for a while. I'm really excited we're going to talk about Wasp and the Beatles on the podcast. (laughs) This is great. I can't wait. Do you have any actual guesses? I'm curious. Um, So it's a beloved and then one that's not. Notice I said groups. They both are musical groups. One of them you do not think of as a musical group. This is the story of the Beach Boys versus the Manson family. Yes! Let's hear it for the Beach Boys! The bizarre late 60s relationship that included pad crashing, song stealing, orgies, and evictions. Uh, The year's 1968. So we've got to talk for a minute about where the Beach Boys are in their career at this point. Yeah. And, and let me just say, buckle into your school bus, baby. Rev up the T-Bird because it's time for some fun, fun, fun. <laughs> uh, we, we clearly both used to work at Classic Rock Radio. And uh, Helter Skelter. So, I mean, you know a lot about the Beach Boys. They formed in 1961. They have a string of bubblegum hit songs about surfing and chasing girls. But in 66, they put out a record that goes down in history as one of the greatest American recordings of all time. Right. That's the Beatles tried to remake because Pet Sounds was possibly the best record at the time. As this starts to happen to them, as they start to make this transition into artists and not just bubblegum pop guys, there's a lot of pressure on Brian Wilson, who is the lead singer. And we'll, we'll get into the makeup of the band in a minute because that's important. We're going to hone in on a particular member. But Brian Wilson has all this pressure on him and he feels like he has to write the perfect follow-up. He starts to write this record called Smile, which no one hears for years and years and years and years and years. Until recently. Uh, yeah. he, he gives up writing it in 67, in fact. You might know or you might not, and that's not what this episode is about, but Brian Wilson has severe battles with mental health. So it becomes a strenuous time in the band. The band begins a leadership transition right around here at, because they want to continue to be taken seriously as artists and not just the California sound guys. Brian was still writing and then stopped performing, which had to be weird. All this sets the stage perfectly for the for the other guys to get themselves in trouble, right? They have tons of money. They're at the height of their game. They've got a lot of spare time because they're waiting on Brian, and they got plenty of people who want to impress them or be around them. So now we need to zoom in on one of the boys in particular, and I'm interested to know how much you know about Dennis Wilson. I only know about him because one of my closest, oldest friends got into him, like late 90s and was like man this is terrific and then but I never I never went that far I never turned the corner and listened to it so I just know that like sort of is like a cult thing an indie rock thing at some point like he became alternative hero of the Beach Boys let me back up and remind you that the original lineup of the Beach Boys is three brothers. Mm-hmm. You got Brian, Dennis, and you got Carl. The band was managed by their dad, Murray, so there's lots of family baggage banging around in the luggage department here, okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Murray sucks. 
Dennis is the middle bro, and he's kind of become known as the brother who embodied the spirit of what people kind of thought of as the Beach Boys. Like, he's good looking, he's restless, he's a little edgy, and the songs he showed up to practice with were always like a little dark. He knew how to live life, man. He was like the guy in photos where you're like, that's what being a Beach Boy is, right? And there's some interesting facts to insert here, just biographical things that don't have a bearing on this story. One of them is that there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not Dennis really, really ever played drums. No, I've never heard this before. There's nasty rumors on the internet, like that I think were widely believed for a long time, that basically only studio musicians play drums on Beach Boys records, that it's not actually Dennis. They did have studio guys playing on some of the on, on some of the records, for sure. Absolutely. But then I think it as they became more ser- taken seriously, the thing that remained was, well, Dennis is just there because he's a brother and he's good looking. He was also naturally left-handed and he would play with this like very specific open-handed technique um, where he doesn't cross his hands. Real recently, like these reissues that have come out in the last three or four years have been like these live Beach Boys records, which I've been eye opening to me to hear how terrific the vocals sound. But there's got to be a drummer, right? But, I, you know, I have no idea who's playing on those records. One more thing we need to cover about Dennis is to kind of set the stage for what kind of guy he is. Is And I don't mean to drag him through the mud. But we need to talk about his marriages because they're interesting. And most of them are after this period. So the very first one to Carol Friedman, uh, where he had a daughter and... I think adopted a son with Carol Friedman. I'm not entirely sure when that happened. That may have been around this time or shortly after it. Then he had a second wife, Barbara Charon, with whom he had two sons. And then, I don't know if you know this, he was married twice to Karen Lamb. Do you know who Karen Lamb is? Oh, it's familiar, but I don't know. I can't pick it out. Robert Lamb is the keyboardist in Chicago. Okay. And so... In 76 and 78, he married Robert Lamb's ex-wife, who was an actress, too. And then he also had a shout-out to some old episodes of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories that you need to go back and find if you haven't heard them, uh, where we talk a little about the, the good old Fleetwood Mac. Uh, there is a Dennis Wilson-Christy McVie relationship in the Annals of Rock history. Oh, wow. I've never heard that. That's but awesome. The wackiest thing is that at the time that he died, which we'll talk about that later. Yeah, which is sad. He, he was married to Sean Marie Love. Recognize that last name? Is that is that related to Darlene? No. She claimed to be the daughter of his first cousin and bandmate, Mike Love. Now, oh. Mike Love doesn't claim her, but she claims Mike Love. So whether or not that's true, Dennis married her. Yeah, I wouldn't claim Mike Love. Uh, so anyway, back to the story. <laughs> we, I just feel like we really need to set the scene with who, who this guy is. This story starts with uh, Dennis Wilson driving around Malibu on a summer evening in 1968. And he did what I think you or I would do, Mark, if we were in 1968 and single and driving around Malibu and we saw some hot hitchhikers. Pick him uh, up. He, he picked him up. He, he pulled over and said, come on in. Where do you want to go? And then a couple of days later, he's out driving that same stretch of road and he sees the same hitchhikers. It's like, well, that's interesting. And he pulls over and he says, hey, guys, remember me? And they say, yeah. And he says, you know what? You want to come back to my place? I think they can pick up the vibe, right? That he probably has a pretty sweet place. He's all got that California sound money. Being a real smooth talker, (laughs) Dennis Wilson, they're sitting around at his house and he starts talking about how he is into spirituality. I mean, it's the late 60s, right? So, and and he thinks he can show off. So he's like, hey, uh, I want to tell you about my guru, uh, 
Maharashi. Girls don't go for it because the girls say they have their own guru. Oh, yeah. They go, oh, we know all about gurus, though. We have a guru named named Charlie. They have a pleasant time. They go their separate ways. Wilson's out playing music. He comes home through the California hillside. And as he winds up towards his house, he notices all the lights are on. And as he gets closer, he notices there's a school bus parked outside. Oh, they moved in. He walks in and finds there is a whole group of people, most of them women, who have taken over his place. As he demands an explanation, the crowd splits and this short dude appears and he's got this crazy hundred mile stare and Dennis is freaked and he says, oh my God, man, are you going to kill me? And the guy goes, do I look like I would do something like that? To which I'm sure Dennis is probably thinking, yeah, man, you do. You totally look like you would do something like that. But before he can respond, the short dude drops to his knees, kisses Dennis's feet. So, Screech, let's pump the brakes for a second on this Model T and look at other players in this story for just a minute, because you might have figured out, because of the title of this podcast and the fact that I already told you, is we are now talking about the Charles Manson. In Los Angeles, Charles Manson went to court today. Charles Manson said he was happy today, that he is always happy, even though he is charged with seven murders. Well, then he questions my sanity. Are you saying? I question his, huh? Are you saying? Sane? Yes. That's relative. What does it feel like to kill somebody, Charles? Word is that you're an old woman. Word is you have turkey in sky. Word is, I don't know what word is. Somebody else tell you that. I didn't tell you that. Did you kill Shay? Hell no. Did you cut the human's ear off? Hell yes. Any sense of rehabilitation? None whatsoever. Continue to see him behind bars? Like to see him there? I think for the rest of his life. You've got it stuck in your brain that I murdered somebody. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. I have it here. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. It's easy to forget, given the fact that he did a bunch of crazy stuff and killed a bunch of people. The good old Charlie was at his roots a rock and roller. Well, a petty criminal and a rock yeah. a, a a rock and roll. He had a, he had some rock and roll aspirations. People didn't know that Charles Manson was a musician. Charlie has a terrible childhood, as you might assume, and he starts hustling with prostitution rings and hot checks when he becomes an adult, like very young. He's in and out of jail. And what's he do while he's in while he's in jail? He somebody shows him how to play guitar. Yeah. So he starts playing guitar, and like every dude with something to prove who knows three chords, it, he plays Oasis songs. No, I'm kidding. He plays <laughs> his own songs. He starts writing songs. There's a time for living. The time keeps on flying. Think you're loving, baby, and all you're doing is crying. Can you feel? Ah, those feelings real Look at your game, girl Look at your Now, there's another rumor about Charlie that has been debunked, but I think we need to address it here. And I don't know if you've ever heard this. Okay. But there's a lot on the internet about it if you want to dig around. Now, the story has floated very heavily that in 1965, Charlie tried out to be part of the TV-friendly goofball troupe. I've heard this story. The Monkees, which I just want everyone to close their eyes as long as they're not driving and take a moment and think about how hilarious that is. <laughs> I thought love was only true in fairy tale. You know, there's always that thing about what if Hitler had been accepted at art school and had never become Hitler, right? You have to wonder... What would have happened? I mean, less impact, but what would have happened if Charles Manson had made it into the monkeys? Would he have been 
like would he have still done something crazy and ordered people killed and gone off the deep end or would would he have like turned to the corner and been okay i want to know if he would have hung out with the other monkeys that hung out with harry nielsen and john lennon at the rainbow right uh, right I will have to do an episode at some point on the monkeys because the monkeys are really interesting, right? I mean, they, they're a great study in this idea of artificially created rock and roll with television being involved and all of that stuff. But let's not get too distracted. I will just tell you, this has been debunked because it is definitely true that Charlie was in prison during this time that, that they would have been auditioning people for the monkeys. And it comes out of the fact that Mickey Dolan's once in an interview made a dumb joke about how many people had actually tried out for the group. And he said offhandedly, everybody tried out for this group, Stephen Stills, Paul Williams, even Charlie Manson, which is a really stupid, dumb joke. But the people who heard it were even dumber uh, because the legend persisted for a long time. I, I actually think it's interesting because it points out this folklore that's come up around Charlie Manson and his rock and roll dreams, right? I, at some point, someone gave me a cassette of Charles Manson playing guitar, like a demo stuff. It was like really low fidelity. It had been recorded a lot. There was the thing. So in 67, he gets out of jail and he starts making friends. Now we're back to the, the scene where Charlie is kissing Dennis's feet and starting a friendship in probably the most awkward way possible. Yeah, but they become friends, right? So for a while... Things are cool. They, they're writing songs together. They're doing a lot of LSD. 15 women who are all more than happy to spend quality time alone with Wilson. Dennis starts to think this guy might be a decent artist, so he starts introducing him to his buddies. He calls up a guy named Neil Young. He calls up a talent scout named Greg Jacobson. And he calls up Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher. I don't know why that's his credit, but apparently that guy's on the call list. And of course, he calls up the other guys in his band. Come meet Charlie. But the other Beach Boys are not into this new guy. Uh, Mike Love has gone on the record with this story, okay? So, according to Mike, who is probably still mad at Dennis for marrying his fake daughter, but anyway, uh, <laughs> it's just so bizarre. So, Mike Love gets an invite to go over to Dennis's place for dinner at some point all of the, for, for all of this, right? So, he does what you and I would do. He wears clothes. But when he shows up, nobody else is. Oh, I see. And then after dinner, everybody takes LSD and starts doing what you do when you're around a bunch of people and your clothes are off. That sounds like a terrible idea. But all right, we'll keep going. All right. Mike is feeling a little weird, so he sneaks off to take a shower. The curtain rips open, and Charlie's yelling at him about being being rude and antisocial. Yeah, you've left. Bro, you don't just show up to one of these things and not participate. <laughs> also, like, you went off by yourself. If you showed up to a party where everybody was not wearing clothes... Would you know the rules? Because I would not. No, I wouldn't. So these sorts of things are just going on in off hours. But during the day, Dennis is feeling pretty good about Charlie and his chances at musical mastery, right? He's even starting to refer to him, to the people that he talks to, as the wizard. Oh, and no way. This is like the name he comes up with for him, right? So to his friends... He says, hey, man, you got to meet the wizard. He starts booking him studio time through the Beach Boys record label. It, it's OK at first, but it doesn't take long for Charlie to get into a disagreement with an engineer. He does what you do when an engineer is messing up your vibe. He pulls a knife out. 
these sorts of things just keep happening. And meanwhile, the crew that Charlie's traveling with is going through a lot of food and drugs at Dennis's house. They go through about $100,000 worth of stuff. And, and this is 60s money. So I don't have the calculator out, but you know, we're probably a lot closer to a million than we are to 100,000. Can't imagine. And Dennis realizes one day, and I can, you know, it's weird because when I hear this story, I actually go, you know, I could see how this could happen. I mean, when there's drugs and there's like people who are like, yeah, man, just keep it, keep it groovy. It's cool, man. It's cool. And they just keep saying that to you. We all had friends like that in college. And at a certain point, you wake up and you're like, I don't know how to get rid of these people. Yeah, you have the permanent enablers. You know what he does? He murders them. Oh, wait, that's wrong. Wait, we got too far ahead. Keep going. Sorry. (laughs) He moves out of the mansion. Oh, and leaves them. He doesn't own the mansion. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I remember this part. He hits the road and he just lets them take it over. Yeah. So when he stops paying the bills, nobody else is. And the landlord comes calling and Charlie and the fam have to hit the bus again. Seems like Dennis got the bat into this deal, right? This this guy shows up, takes advantage of him, ends up abusing most of the connections that he, he gives him. But Dennis has a trick up his sleeve. Dennis had a favorite Charlie song. You know, because Charlie was writing songs. Lots of them. Charlie showed him a song called Cease to Exist. Dennis shows up at Beach Boys practice and he's like, I got a song. He rewrites it a little bit and he calls it Never Learn Not to Love. (laughs) Do you know this song? No, I don't. But I can't wait to listen to it. That song was written in its original form by Charlie Manson. But if you look on the credits, it is not credited to Charlie Manson. So it's Dennis Wilson. It is credited only to Dennis Wilson. Now, when Charlie hears that this has happened, there are reports that he shows up flipping a bullet through his fingers and telling Dennis to keep an eye on his kids. That's generally what happens when I get angry like at the cable guy. That makes sense. (laughs) Some reports say this maneuver actually led to a fight in between Charlie and Dennis where Charlie gets beat up. I mean, because, again, Dennis is a pretty, pretty good specimen of a man. At this point, it's 1969, right? The guys aren't talking a lot. Charlie's getting fed up that his music career isn't taking off. And depending on what you believe that summer he orders Sharon Tate and her friends to be murdered and in the aftermath he shows up at Dennis's place Dennis I need some cash now Dennis probably a little freaked out that Charlie's back in his life right he thinks he's he's cut some ties Charlie has found him at a new location so he gives him some money very quickly Charlie Manson gets caught spends the rest of his life in prison Dennis is interviewed by police he will not testify in public wow Dennis is haunted by this for the rest of his life. Now, I I think we can make some suppositions as to why. I think he's like a little ashamed about his lack of judgment. I think also it's a crazy thing to be connected to. Like the fact that we're talking about this all these years later kind of points out, right? Also, reports are that he gets death threats from the family for years. And he quits talking about his association with Charlie with almost anyone. And finally, the craziest part of this story. Again, Mike Love can't like Dennis that much, I don't think. So you can't always trust him but he swears that wilson told him that he actually watched manson cut a man in half with an m16 like just like so many bullets that the guy is in two pieces oh my god and then throws the body in a well oh my god it's so gross (laughs) it's like something out of like a charles bronson movie like it sounds made up but whatever you mentioned earlier Dennis Wilson, tragic death. Dies relatively young. Yeah. What do, what do you know about Dennis Wilson's end of life? He drowned. Before that, he gets really into alcohol and heroin. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, he's on yeah, he's he's on smack and then he drowns. 
and it's devastating. He quits the band, mm-hmm. and rejoins the band. Eventually, mm-hmm. he's given an ultimatum that says if he doesn't get into rehab, he can't play with them. You can actually Google pics of him on stage in 83. And let me tell you, dude. Yeah. They are rough. Yeah. So the reason I knew about what he looked like visibly and then started going back in the history is that I started discovering more about Brian, about Brian Wilson. Once Brian went back on stage, it was a little jarring if you didn't know what had happened to Brian because, you know, it looked like he'd had a stroke. And and then I remember seeing his brother and thinking, man, this the whole family is have been, you know, dragged through it. Once I pieced together what happened to Dennis, that's when I found out about this. I didn't know all of these details, but... By November, Dennis is homeless, right? And this is 83. Uh, He checks into a rehab center or a therapy center in Arizona for two days. December 23rd, checks into St. John's Medical Hospital in Santa Monica. He stays there until Christmas... And then he gets in a fight, Santa Monica Bay Inn, and he's checked into a different hospital because uh, he's got to treat his wounds. I mean, he just you can see the spiraling downward that is happening. He then discharges himself and reportedly just immediately like starts drinking again. December 28th, he drowns at Marina Del Rey, dives in. He says to recover his ex-wife's belongings, well, or, or the, the story is, which were previously thrown overboard at the marina from the from like three years before. So he's like so out of his mind that he's like, I'm going to go find this stuff that like we got in a fight. She threw it overboard. I'm going to go find it. And he never comes back up. He has a shallow water blackout and then dies. And they find his sea, his body at sea January 4th. Yeah. God, it's so awful. And there is some speculation that what did this Charlie Manson situation, how did it contribute to that? And, I, you know, there's obviously no way to directly know, but there's a little bit of a game there where you go. Yeah, and I think that post his death, once they reissued Dennis's solo records, like he was romanticized, you know, and it's that thing that happens when you have like a young, uh, you know, you remember the young looking Dennis and not the the Dennis at the at the end, the fat Elvis type of thing. Right. As a songwriter, he was really underrated. Because his brother was such an amazing songwriter. And he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That does happen in 88. For sure. I mean, I often like to ask people in job interviews and in other situations who the greatest American band is. And the answers always come down to either the Beach Boys or Tom Petty. Some people will fight for R.E.M., but typically the fight comes down between Beach Boys and Tom Petty. Yeah, Tom Petty. I I go with Tom Petty every single time. I I can at least tolerate someone saying the Beach Boys. They definitely are, as I said, a beloved American group and and their icons. So I want to, before we wrap, there is another story that actually involves Brian Wilson that's very specific. So do you know about this novel called Seconds? No. So I found out about this by accident. Years ago, saw something, I think it was like in the Amazon Kindle store or something, where they were promoting that for the first time, this kind of cult classic book had been put in digital format called Seconds. It's by a guy named David Eli. It came out in, I believe, 62. I was intrigued. It's pretty short. It was a a forgotten sci-fi classic. Let me give you the setup. There's a guy. He gets a call from a guy he thought was dead and he was an old friend that they went to college together and he's like man i thought i heard you jumped into a volcano he's like i didn't but i live under a different name come to this address 
and you can find out all you want to know about it. And he slowly gets kind of roped in by this group who promises to give middle-aged white dudes going through a midlife crisis essentially like a new life. Hmm. So this character in the book, his name is Wilson. So he gets kind of conned into it by this old friend of his and by the organization. And as the book goes on, he starts to figure out that this is a terrible deal. I, I tell you all that to tell you a couple things about it. Even though this was not a super popular book that has lived on in pop cultural conscience. It was made into a movie starring Rock Hudson. That happens in 64. It's known for some of the camera work and some of the, the stuff they did. They actually used actual footage of a rhinoplasty at some point in the movie. Like There's like some interesting things about it. But the reason this all ties to this episode and this band is there is a famous story that has been revealed since Brian Wilson, kind of in the height of his mental health failing, goes to a screening of seconds and shows up late. And when he goes into the movie theater, he walks in at the point where one of the doctors or one of the characters says, come in, Mr. Wilson. <laughs> he's freaking out. And he's convinced for some time because his mental health is deteriorating that Phil Spector, who was in fact, one of the film's investors is taunting him in the movie. Yeah. He ends up, canceling the Beach Boys album Smile right after this and the film reportedly frightened him so much that he did not see another movie this is 64 the next movie he saw in a movie theater was E.T. oh my gosh it's 82 almost 20 years wow the right this way Mr. Wilson I'm never gonna forget that <laughs> ever oh man Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright 2020 Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.